Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Hello, friends. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, everyone, to this very special live edition of South Asian Trailblazers. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Simi Shaw. Uh, I'm the founder and host of Trailblazers. And we are both a podcast as well as a broader content platform and community dedicated to diving deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians. And I started this platform a couple of years ago after graduating from college because I was in this new professional chapter of my life and had no idea how to sustain this connection that I'd felt to our culture my entire life. And as I looked around, I realized that there were so many South Asians leading and achieving across every corner of every industry. And I thought, hey, what if we created a space where we could capture their stories, where we could access them in a way that could inform and inspire our own? And so that was the genesis of Trailblazers. And today I'm so proud to say that we're over 50 episodes and 55 Trailblazers deep. And of course, have been privileged enough to bring our community to life through events like these. So thank you all for being here tonight um, and for marking yet another very special milestone for us. Um, before we jump into this event, there are a number of people that I would like to thank uh, because of how instrumental they were in making tonight happen. And I want to kick that off by, of course, thanking our gracious hosts for the evening, Free Agency. And I'm going to invite my friend Andrew up here to tell you guys a little bit about the incredible work they're doing. Um, so this isn't a we work. We are an actual company. Um, <laughs> there are the people that told you to be quiet um, earlier. Um, basically, free agency takes Hollywood-style talent agency and management to people in um, technology. So top-level tech talent. I'm a talent agent. I work with 30-odd people, either they're senior engineers or VPs of product, helping you know nurture, coach, you know, be a therapist for the next you know perfect role for them. Uh, because we're paid by individuals, we're zero cost for. VCs and founders, and so uh, companies really like us because usually, you know, creating um, is very expensive. But we just love hosting um, events like this and using up the space because uh, it's a waste not to. So thank you for being here. And if you have any questions about free agency or like where a cup is, let me know. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andrew. I also want to give a huge shout to Desi Gully and Chef Bria, who provided the phenomenal food you guys are eating tonight. Uh, I don't know where she is, but um, they have restaurants all over Manhattan. Please stand up. Um, so please be sure to go and check them out. We also have a number of Bev partners, including Jungly, Rupee Beer, and Tinto Amorio, all South Asian-founded Bev brands. So if you haven't tried them yet, please make sure you do before you go. Um, I also want to say a very special thank you to Hani Anis and the entire Kahani Digital team. Um, they are the reason you guys see all these South Asian brands represented here tonight. Um, and Kahani is just literally an incredible marketer. If you are a founder looking for a trusted partner to amp your digital marketing and bring events like this to life, please make sure you have a conversation with her today or at some point in the future. Um, and in that vein, the very special surprise we have for you guys, in addition to our amazing guest, um, are these swag bags full of products from South Asian owned and operated brands. And I want to give a quick shout out to all of them. It includes Shaz and Kicks, Wander Beauty, the incredible artist Lakshmi Sarkar, who's here with us tonight, uh, Mudita Earth, Luvi, and Lavanya is also here with us tonight, the founder of Luvi, um, as well as Silk and Sonder and the Golden Hour Candle Company. So make sure you guys grab a swag bag before you head out. Um, and now on to our main event, the reason you guys are all here tonight. Um, I am so, so excited to welcome a very special guest. And 
what I want to say is, as I said at the start, our platform is all about digging deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians. And so before I bring her out here, I want to give you guys a little bit of background on who she is and what she's done thus far. Anjula Acharya is the CEO and founder of A-Series Investments and Management. Today, she works as a talent manager and strategic investor and advisor to a host of startups, including two early stage investments, which grew into unicorns, Bumble and ClassPass. Her extensive advisory and investment portfolio includes The Muse, Hooked, Thrive Cosmetics, Olipop, Gobble, and The Well. She also sits on BuzzFeed's board of directors, because all of that isn't enough. A serial entrepreneur herself, Angela previously co-founded Desi Hits, a digital entertainment platform through which she pioneered the merging of global cultures by introducing artists like Lady Gaga, Britney Spears, and 50 Cent to India. And she eventually returned the favor, of course, by launching the famed actress Priyanka Chopra Jonas's career here in America and who she continues to represent today. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Anjala Acharya. Angela, thank you so much for being here with us tonight and for volunteering your time and giving us the opportunity to share in the wisdom of your experience. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump in by starting right at the beginning of your story. And that is with a small town in England. And what was really surprising to me is that at a young age, you actually faced a lot of bullying, a lot of racism, a lot of xenophobia due to a neo-Nazi resurgence in England. In what ways did those early childhood experiences shape you and your longer term aspirations? Um, yes, um, you know, it was, it was a really horrible childhood in many ways. It was, uh, you know, England was, uh, obviously I'm from England. Um, England was, is, was going through this neo-Nazi resurgence and it was, uh, it was just really tough. I think, um, I think there was a strong immigrant population from, uh, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and people just didn't want us there. And um, I grew up in a, a small town outside of London, about 40 miles north of London, and there were just no South Asians. So if you lived in London, there were a lot of South Asians and people were used to you. But where I grew up, there was none. So it was particularly difficult. But what was so interesting to me, and you know, now I'm able to articulate it, but when I was growing up, what I realized is what people saw on TV was what informed the way they treated me. So back then, um, not to show my age too much, but back then there was literally four channels and everybody was watching those four channels in England. And there would be these shows and they were just really, you know, there were very few South Asians on television, but when they were, they were just really ugly stereotypes of us. And I remember once uh, watching this TV show, it was called Grain Chill, for anyone from England who'd seen it. And um, they had this storyline of this Pakistani girl, actually, and her father was convinced that she'd lost her virginity and he was taking her to the doctors because she'd lost her virginity and he thought she was sleeping with this white boy. And um, the next day at school, I just got bullied so hard and everyone was like, is your dad taking you to the doctors? Like, you know, everybody just assumed that was my life. And it was just such a horrible experience. And that's when I sort of realized that, wow, the power of this thing, this television was really shaping my life. And, you know, years later I decided I wanted to do something about it. But at that time I just realized it was hugely responsible for the way I was being treated at school. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because you've spoken often about how the power of visualization is something that got you through this period of life. And I know that it's very cool these days to believe in the law of attraction and manifestation. I know we all do it, even if we say we don't. <laughs> but can you speak a little bit to those, you know, early experiences in visualizing your life under the stars and, you know, what you saw and how visualization continues to shape your life? 
Yeah, um, I was quite shy growing up and um, I was quite introverted because of the experiences that I had. And I would just sit in my bedroom for hours. And what I would do was I had this window, so I had a small bedroom. I was the youngest, so I always got the small room. And I would just sit on my windowsill and I would listen to Michael Jackson on this like small tape recorder thing that I would have. And I would listen to Michael Jackson and I would think about how he was like me, that he didn't have any real friends either because people just wanted to be friends with him because he was famous and he didn't know who his real friends were. And I didn't know who my real friends were because I was colored brown, packy, whatever you want to call me in, that, in those days. But I remember looking up at the stars and I would always look at the stars and be like, those same stars are in Hollywood and one day I'm going to be there, you know, and I would wow. just, it's so weird to me now to think about my life and where I am and what I'm doing, but I literally would just sit there every night and look at those stars and be like, they're the same stars in Hollywood and I'm going to be there. Wow. So in some ways, this starts to shape your foray into media and entertainment. I know you go to drama school when you're 14, but then you graduate from university and work in sales. So in what, how did you pick these early career experiences and how did they lead to your ultimate trajectory to Hollywood? You know, I really, really wanted to be in the theater. I wanted to be an actress. Um, I didn't want to do TV. I hated TV. TV was the enemy. Like, I did not <laughs> want to do TV. I wanted to do theater because theater felt like more make-believe. But then I was, like, obsessed with Shakespeare and Brecht and Stanislavski and all these crazy playwrights that, sorry, not crazy, but amazing playwrights that, you know, no director back then would have casted me in either because they still weren't, like, blind casting, right? So I was never going to get any leads, and I kind of saw myself as a leading lady. Um, so then I made this really hard decision that I was either going to be a poor actress or I was going to be a rich businesswoman. So, um, and it's amazing, you know, I remember being in sales and, you know, one of the things that I did was I was really great at, um, uh, uh, improvisation, improv as you guys call it here. And, um, I was just like, every time I picked up that phone, I was just like, I could be anyone I want and I could pretend to be on stage and I could pretend to be acting and, I think that's how I got really good at sales. Wow. So eventually you decide to pursue that early childhood dream of living under the Hollywood stars. Well, technically you moved to Silicon Valley Yeah. and you pick up your entire life in England. You moved to the US not knowing a single soul, which is extremely hard to believe now. But what, what was the impetus to finally take that risk and move here? Yeah, you know, I, it's so funny. I used to say to my parents, like, I'm going to live in America. That's going to happen. And um, I got, I'd, I'd got the opportunity to come to America. And, um, yeah, I didn't know a soul. And I remember just thinking, like, yeah, it's a risk, but I can always come back if I want to. So I just got up and left and, and came here. And I couldn't even work. I didn't even have a visa to work at the time. And I did not know a soul apart from my ex-husband. And... Um, yeah, I just I just thought it was a risk, but I thought, well, what's the worst that could happen? I could just get on a plane and come home again. What was it about America that appealed to you so much? I think it was Hollywood. I think I, you know, I had that Hollywood bug. Like, and I was moving to Silicon Valley. I wasn't moving to Hollywood. Yeah. I had no connection to Hollywood <laughs> at all. But wrong part of California. Right. But it was in California and it felt closer to Hollywood. And actually by that point, to be honest with you, I wasn't like, I want to go to Hollywood. I wasn't thinking that. Um, I was just thinking like America is the land of, you know, the dream. Like I was just like, I was, I was always obsessed with it somehow. Wow. Now, when you make the move to Silicon Valley, you began building out your own startup, Basie Hits, mm -hmm. a multi-platform media company, which has been dubbed the Basie MTV. <laughs> did you ever, I mean, I know you said, you know, you were going to be a rich businesswoman, but did you ever expect to be an entrepreneur building a company from scratch and that too for our community? You know, it's interesting. When I moved to Silicon Valley, I was kind of obs the amazing thing about Silicon Valley, right? I came from England where South Asians weren't really lifted up. Like they weren't seen as particularly interesting. There was a very working class community that emigrated from India and Pakistan and South Asia. Um, so coming to Silicon Valley was really shell-shocking for me in a good way. Like suddenly I realized that I had privilege, like I'd never had privilege, wow. but going into Silicon Valley, like people like look at South Asians and like, oh, you're smart. 
And I would walk into, they do. I mean, they, if you're Asian, like South Asian or Asian in Silicon Valley, you, you get props straight away, right? So I'd walk into meetings and not only did I have this British accent, but I was South Asian on top of that. So people <laughs> thought I was really smart. And I was like, this is really working for me. I got I to gotta work this one. Um, and actually, in terms of like founding Desi Hits, it was actually kind of, which has been the story of my life in many ways. It was kind of an accident, really didn't do it on purpose. I was actually working in, in executive search with a lot of VCs. And um, me and my ex-husband had put this the podcast together and it was a mashup of music of like hip-hop bhangra bollywood and it just went viral on itunes and next thing i know i was telling a venture capitalist about it and i was like oh my god this is so cr-. he was like what's happening outside of work blah 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 and i was just shooting a shit and he was like um I told him about this podcast and the next day he said to me, hey, do you have the iTunes report for that podcast? And I was like, why does he want that? And I thought, I didn't care, you know, I didn't really care about it. So I was just like, yeah, I do. Like, I'll send it to you. So I sent it to him. And then I, next thing I know, I had a term sheet for a million, a million, yeah, a million dollars. Wow. Um, And he was like, you should build this. Like, this is a company worth building. You should build this. And what was the thesis? I didn't really have a thesis at the time. I just had this... Just a million dollars. Yeah, I had had a podcast that was doing great. It was a mashup of music. At that point, it was kind of beating, outperforming what we saw as our competitor, which was BBC Asian Network in the UK, which was kind of doing similar kind of music podcasts. And yeah, we were doing better than them. And it was literally out of my back bedroom, you know, and it was literally me and my ex-husband and his cousin who were just kind of like putting music together that we loved and talking over the top of it. And, and yeah, it just grew into this platform. Yeah. And so eventually it does grow into this platform and you're given the opportunity to take mega stars like Lady Gaga and Britney Spears and try to introduce them to India. And at the time, a lot of people told you it was too difficult or too controversial to be done. What was your approach? Why did you think you could do it anyway? So I through like uh, a series of events and destiny, as I would call it, I met this guy called Jimmy Iovine. And Jimmy Iovine was a founder of Beats by Dre and Interscope Records and had found everyone from like Eminem to 50 Cent to U2. I mean, his list is endless. And he became my mentor, my business partner. He invested in the company and he just saw something that honestly I didn't see that early on. And um, I, I started working with him and he really opened the door to you know, us working with all these artists from 50 to Britney to, you know, Gaga to all the people that we're working with. And he said something really interesting to me. I mean, it actually plays more into when, not when I was taking talent that way, but when I actually wanted to bring Priyanka to America. And I remember saying to somebody, I can't remember who it was, that, oh yeah, I want to bring this Bollywood star to America. Her name is Priyanka Chopra. And um, someone laughed. And and I went back to him and I was like insecure, you know, and, and I said, oh, you know, people are laughing about it. Like, do you think it's a bad idea? He goes, do you know people laughed when I said I wanted to sign Eminem, like a white rapper? He goes, <laughs> people laughed at that. And I was like, oh, right. He was like, so don't care about it. He said, if people laughed, it laughs, it validates your idea. Wow. Like you're onto something. And I was like, okay. So I think when I heard that story, and there were many stories he told me, but like, I think I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to do what feels good to me, you know, and I'm going to trust my instinct. And it was interesting with Gaga, everybody said to me, you cannot take her to India. She's wearing meat dresses. Like people, (laughs) it's predominantly Hindu. Like, what are you doing? Like you can, and this was literally after the meat dress. And, um, you know, this is when I really learned what it is to be a global storyteller. And I was like, you know, if I tell the story right, it will work. And I sort of really was more out to prove it to myself than anyone else. But yeah, everybody was like, it won't work. You're going to ruin your reputation. Like, it's going to be bad. And you're going to look really stupid. But I was like, let's see. Wow. Now, as you've noted, Jimmy Iovine ends up being a pretty pivotal mentor in your context of your entire career, it sounds like. And as she just said, he's a legendary record exec. He's the founder of Interscope Records, and he also helped launch Beats by Dre. So this guy is the real deal. Can you tell us the story of how you first met Jimmy? Um, So it's a funny story. The actual first time I was supposed to meet Jimmy 
I flew from San Francisco to LA and I landed on the tarmac and I get this phone call from his assistant and she says, Jimmy has to cancel on you because Gwen Stefani's having an issue and he needs to go and fix it. And I was just like, oh, this is why the, biz- the label's going out of business. Like, <laughs> I was so annoyed. And so I literally got straight back on the plane and went back home again. And at that time, I was raising my Series B funding uh, for DC Hits. I was raising $5 million. And um, one of the venture capitalists that had um, given me a term sheet, which is an offer for, um, sorry, I don't know why everyone knows these terms, but basically an offer of financing, but it's contingent on certain things. And it was contingent on me meeting Jimmy because he had worked for Jimmy and he said, if there's anyone that knows pop culture and what's next and what's around the corner, it's Jimmy. So he wanted me to meet him. So Jimmy canceled on me. I went back and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this term sheet from someone else anyway, so I don't really care. So I raised $5 million. I flew to New York. I'm now living in New York. And randomly, I'm having dinner with that investor that had offered me that term sheet. And I'm flying to LA the next day. And he says to me, did you ever meet Jimmy? And I was like, no, that guy canceled on me. I don't want to meet him. Like, I was, you know, it's so much ego. And he was like, no, I'm telling you, you've got to meet him. And I was like, no, I don't really care. And by the way, this guy's name was Drew Lipshaw. And uh, I was like, I don't really care. I don't really care. And he was like, trust me, Andrew, you need to meet this guy. Like, he's going to get it. And then I was in LA and I was told I had a 15 minute meeting with Jimmy Iovine. And I go, really? I'm driving from West Hollywood to Santa Monica for a 15 minute meeting? I was like, are you serious? It's going to take me 15 hours to get there in the traffic. And you want me to do 15 minutes? And I was like, Mr. Drew. And he goes, that 15 minutes will be four hours if you play your cards right. And I was like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) So um, I go and he goes, the 15 minutes is so he has a get out if you're uninteresting. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to be uninteresting. So um, I show up. And he doesn't say a word to me for 15 minutes, but he has like 50 people in that room. And he had warned me, Drew had said to me, there will be a lot of people in that room. And um, all these people were throwing these questions at me. And, um, and I was like, oh, in 15 minutes, like I was like, oh, my time's up because Jimmy was, I could see him getting restless. And I was like, oh, you know, my time's up. And then he said to me, are you hungry? <laughs> and I was like, sure. And we spent four hours together. And we talked about everything from like, you know, pop culture to music to fashion to India. And he was absolutely fascinated with everything I was doing. And next, the next week I met him in New York with Jay-Z and he offered me millions of dollars for the startup. And there's a great backstory here too. So Jimmy ends up investing in your series B but he ends up saying the one thing to you that you never want to hear from your investor. Can you tell us the story? Yeah, so a couple of weeks after the money arrived in my bank account, um, and I have to tell you, like, I I said to Jimmy that, um, like, he was like, he really wanted to invest. Like, he was chasing me to invest. I wasn't trying to get him to invest. Well, I mean, I was, you know, playing. (laughs) And he said to me, I was like, okay, Jimmy, you can invest, but there's no due diligence. We close in five days. Like, I'm not messing around here. And he was like, no, no, I'll give you a check right now. And I said, well, no, you need to wire me the money. But like, we closed the investment really, really fast. But then three weeks later, I'm in New York again, Tim, Jay-Z and me having breakfast. And he goes, "Um, you know, Andrew, you're super talented. And like, this is a great idea but you know it's going to fail and I don't want you to be disappointed when it does. And I was just like, what? What do you mean? You're just giving me millions of dollars. That was way too early in my journey as an entrepreneur to like, you know, to even accept that. And I was like, what do you mean? What are you saying? Like, I was so upset. And obviously Jay-Z sitting there, so I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he's basically calling me a failure. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, like, don't look at it that way. And he goes, you know, if Eminem walks into my my office with a record I don't like, I'm going to tell him to go back to the studio and create something else. And he was like, you're an album. You're not a single. Like, this might might not be your hit. And that's okay. Because you're going to go back and you're going to create an album and it's going to be amazing. And, you know, he was right. Like, it didn't work. It was too early. We were just ahead of the curve in so many ways. and, And the world wasn't ready for us. 
So it didn't work. But, you know, I went on to sign Priyanka Chopra Jonas and um, that did work. And he was right. I've had many hits since then. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't think this is something that we talk enough about just generally as a society in that founderhood often gets very much glorified in the age that we live in. But as you said, Desi Hits was ahead of its time and it didn't work out when you were founding it. And I imagine that was something that was really tough. Can you talk about how you dealt with that failure and coped with it? Yeah, it was probably a couple of really bad times in my life. That was really one of them. Um, You know, I was in LA at the time and it was funny, the only person that kept telling me it was okay was Jimmy. Like, he knew it was failing, and I, I was scared to tell him. Like, I would sit on his veranda and have breakfast with him, eating my berries, and he'd be like, I don't think it's working. Like, and I'd be like, no, no, it's good, it's great, everything's great. I was like, really just didn't want to admit what was happening. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a really, when it finally, like, was done, it, well, you know, I couldn't raise money. Um, I could have raised money if I'd gone to India, but I didn't want to move to India. I was going through a really hard time. I was breaking up with my husband. Uh, everything was just falling apart. It was a really, really hard time. But the amazing thing was, it was that, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in New York and LA, and then I went back to San Francisco And the crazy thing that happened to me was I was walking around meeting VCs because I knew a lot of them and they were all offering me jobs. And I was like, I'm a failure. Why are they all offering me jobs? And that is like, that's a stripe in Silicon Valley. Like you tried it, you raised money, you were successful, you got to a certain place, but you didn't make it, but that's okay. Like failure is not considered this really dramatic bad thing. You know, it's actually, you know, getting you on your way to a success. You're one step closer. So I think that um, it was a really, it was really great to go back to Silicon Valley and realize that, you know, you had so many founders that failed, but then were successful. And, you know, I guess like a lot of VCs at the time, they were offering me entrepreneur in residence. They all wanted to know what my next thing was. And they wanted wow. to like, you know, like they were like, come in here and, 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 and just work out what your next thing is going to be. And at the time I was thinking about building a business actually with uh, Britney Spears and decided not to go down that path. But um, yeah, it was just really amazing to be in Silicon Valley and be in a place where like failure doesn't matter. Like it's like trying is what matters. Wow. I have to ask, what was the business you were going to build with Britney Spears? We were looking to build, we were looking to build an apparel business called Work Bitch. <laughs> I think it could work. <laughs> so did she. <laughs> um, now, eventually, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about how all these VCs were scoping you out for jobs and you actually do become kind of an accidental investor because Pyle Kadakia, the founder of ClassPass, who we've also had on Trailblazers, sought you out as a mentor. Can you tell us the story of, you know, how you came upon Pyle and how she became your first investment? Yeah, so again, totally accidental. Um, I was running Daisy Hits. I was the CEO and founder of it. We were in the music business. She was working at Warner Music Group. I had a deal with Warner Music Group. And one of the, um, one of the executives there, a guy called Roger Gold, um, had said to me, she, she had expressed to him that she wanted to be uh, a founder. And he said, oh, I know Andrew Luracharya. She's like the South Asian founder. And she was like, yeah, I love her. Like, I'd love to meet her. And he connected us and she came into my office for a, like a friendly chat. I wasn't advising startups then. I was busy doing my own. I wasn't investing then either. And she came to me and I, it's so crazy when I look back now, like I just knew she was magic. Like, she came in and she had these ideas and she told me she wanted to build the open table for classes. And, you know, a lesson that um, Jimmy had taught me was, um, you know, he, he saw things before anybody else had seen anything like M&M, 50 Cent, whatever. And I always said to him, how do you know how to see around corners before anyone else? I was like, how do you anticipate pop culture? And he said to me, you have to listen to every conversation. He said, you have two ears and one mouth. And he was like, you have to listen to what people are saying. And don't be so busy talking when you can be listening. And listen to what the common themes are in, you know, at the water fountain, in the coffee shop, when you're having dinner, what's the conversation that's always happening? And at that time, 
I remember everybody was talking about like boutique fitness, like everyone was talking about going to Barry's boot camp and Soul Cycle. And I remember I just moved to New York and I was asking a friend of mine, I was like, oh, which, like you are Equinox, like which gym should I join? And he was like, I don't even go to my gym anymore. I just do Barry's and I do this and I do that. And when Pyle came in and said to me, I want to build a, a platform that's like open table for classes, it just like clicked. I was like, I get it. Because um. everybody was talking about boutique fitness. And I said that to her. I said, wow, everyone's talking about boutique fitness. Like you're onto something. And by the way, it pivoted many times. It was very difficult. It wasn't easy. Uh, it was hard to raise money. And because it was hard to raise money, I gave her some money and I gave her the first check. And it wasn't really that I gave her the check because I was like, you know what you're doing. I gave her the check at the time because I was trying to convince other people to invest and they kept, they kept asking me if I'd invested. <laughs> so they were like, have you invested? And I was like, no. And they were like, well, then why would I invest? And I was like, that's a really good point. So I went back to Pan and I go, look, if I'm going to convince these people to invest in you, I'm going to have to invest in you. Wow. And she was like, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how that happened so it was yeah very accidental I definitely wasn't going I'm going to be this great investor like that wasn't happening I just really believed in her and really wanted her to win and I just knew that she'd figure it out so I did whatever I had to do to get her some money Wow. No, I feel like sometimes there's this perception that you have to have access to a lot of capital to start investing. What advice do you have for you know even the people in this room who want to get started but don't really know how? You don't need a lot of capital. I gave her a really small amount of money, but it was enough to get other people to invest money. I think that if you want to get involved in investing, it's very risky. I'm not suggesting that anyone does it. Um, but I would say that, yeah, start with really small checks. And what I like to do is I often, well, back then anyway, I gave really small checks, but I'd be like, I'll help you. So I'll give you some money, but give me some equity so that, you know, my investment's bigger because I have more equity and let me do things for you. Let me help you. Like with Pyle, she incubated in my office. Like I was there every day with her, you know, iterating the ideas and chatting with her, you know, for a good, I want to say, I don't know, one or two years before wow. she sort of went to um, Techstars and she went on this whole journey. But yeah, I think um, if you're really interested in startups and you're really interested in investing, I think not underestimating what you can bring to a startup in terms of sweat equity is always helpful. Absolutely. Now, I want to shift direction a little bit, but there, there is some relation here in that it seems like your superpower really is seeing stars and recognizing talent. And now through your work with Daisy Hits and Jimmy Iovine, through a series of events, you get thrust into this role of becoming Brianka Chopra Jonas's manager. How did that first conversation with Brianka go? How did that even all happen? Well, I have to give you a bit of a backstory. So I wasn't into Bollywood at all. I didn't watch Hindi movies. Um, and I know how to say Hindi movies and not Bollywood, by the way. They don't <laughs> like that. Um, but um, yeah, I wasn't into it at all. And way before I even founded Desi Hits, and I wasn't in the entertainment business, I'd seen Priyanka on TV at my mom and dad's house in England. And I don't know what it was, but something stuck in my brain. Like, I remember looking at her and going... I asked my mom who she was, and my mom was like, that's Priyanka Chopra. And something just stuck. And years later, oh, and then later on, my mom sends me a movie of hers and just says, oh, it's got that girl you like it. And I'm like, I'm not watching a Bollywood movie. <laughs> and then randomly I watched it, and I was like, oh, she's super interesting. Which just, movie was it? It was, um, it was uh, oh, jeez. Damn it, I can't remember the name. But um, can I get back to you on that yes. one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's on the tip of my tongue, but I don't remember the name. Um, anyway, so years later, I'm working with Jimmy Iovine at Desi Hits. We had just done all the music for Slumdog Millionaire because that was signed through Interscope Records. And we'd done a remix with the Pussycat Dolls and, um, and A.R. Rahman. And um, it was top 10 in 10 countries. And Jimmy was like, you're a genius. This is amazing. <laughs> what do you want to do? Like, he literally sort of gave me like a ticket. He was kind of like, you can do whatever you want. And I just remembered her and I said, you know, there's this woman, Priyanka Chopra, and she's really amazing. And um, we started Googling her and watching her YouTube videos in his office in LA. And he goes, what do you want to do with her? And I said, you know, I've always wanted to change pop culture for South Asians. I've always wanted to have someone 
out there that I can look up to that represents us in a way that I would want to be represented. And by the way, I didn't know anything about Priyanka, so I didn't know she'd be cool. I didn't know that she was the right person. I just knew that she'd caught my eye. And um, Jimmy's just Jimmy. He was just like, go get her. And I was like, yeah, it's a bit more difficult than that. <laughs> he was like, just go get her. And I was like, yeah, it's, you know, she's like at the top of her game. She's like the Beyonce for India. <laughs> and uh, he was like, well, that's okay. Like, what do you need? And he's going to make you laugh. But I was like, I need two white guys. Like, I, I, it's for her to take me seriously, I got to rock up with some, like, you know, with some white guys. Because, like, just this young Indian woman, like, rocking up to Bombay is not going to convince her. I knew it wouldn't. So I rock up with the CEO of um, a Universal Music in the UK oh and the gosh. international head of marketing for all of Universal globally. He goes, is that a good enough team? Because Jimmy's not getting on a plane to come to India with me. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that, that works. So I rocked up to India. I mean, I actually had a conversation with Priyanka on the phone before that meeting, and that went terribly. Why? Uh, in my mind. <laughs> well, she was doing this movie called, uh, I think it's Saad Kufman. Um, I probably said that terribly, so forgive me. Um, and um, she, she, we laugh about it now because she was like, I was in a very serious actor place. Like, I didn't want to talk about like a pop career in America. I was like being a very serious actor. And um, so she was in the jungle shooting this movie and she was literally talking to me on a satellite phone and um, I remember Jimmy texting me through the whole thing. <laughs> and she just didn't say a word. So when someone doesn't say much, you just then end up over-talking. So I was just talking and talking and talking. And literally at the end of it, she was like, I've got to go now. I was like, okay. So I put the phone down. And he goes, how did it go? I said, terribly. I think she thinks I'm awful. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I'm like on a plane to India. And I go and have dinner with her, with my two white guys <laughs> in Mumbai. And that went much better. Wow. And I just, yeah, you know, it was just like, she, she was very skeptical, quite rightly so. But I like convinced her that she needed to come to America with me. Like, I was like, I, I, I can make you famous. I want to make you global, globally famous. And um, she was like, why, why do you think it would work with me? It didn't work with anyone else. It didn't work with Ashwari. It didn't work with all these other people that have tried. And I said, I don't know. I've been good. I've been good with everything else. So wow. I, th I think I know what I'm doing here. And it's interesting because a recent comment by Brianka on Dak Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, went viral because she talked about how she left Bollywood because of the politics she was facing. She was being bullied, pushed into a corner, not being given a lot of opportunities. What did you see in her given, you know, you had producers from Bollywood coming to you and telling you that she's not worth it. What gave you the conviction anyway? You know, I think it's just, well, the interesting thing was, I think I came to her, her, to her at a super interesting time when all this was happening in Bollywood, but I had no clue because I wasn't reading Bollywood news. I didn't know that they were pushing into a corner. I didn't know what was happening. It was only when we started like hanging out together um, and we were working that I realized something was going on in India and that she was kind of getting pushed into a corner, corner and being bullied. And I resonated with that because I felt pushed in a corner and bullied many times, you know, and I was just like, you're too talented for that to, to stop you. And I think, you know, Priyanka always says, she goes, I'm Destiny's child. She is. I came to her exactly at the right time. Like she was at the top of her game, but she was going through all these personal circumstances where she felt pushed in a corner and she felt alienated by the, by the community. And I came at her with this idea which was a huge risk to her because A, no one else had done it before, B, it not worked, and C, you know, that was her giving up opportunity in India every time she came to spend time with me in America because, like, she was still shooting movies and, like, I, her manager at the time, Natasha Powell, would say to me, I got 10 days here and I've got three days here and can you do anything with those days? And I'd be like, really? Like, you know, people spend their, American stars spend their whole lives trying to break in America and I've got a breaker in 23 days. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, I know this is going to be hard, but this is going to be even harder. So it was super challenging, but I think she was committed to doing it because what was happening. And yes, I had a dinner with a number of very famous producers and, and people from India. 
And they, at a dinner party, told me that she would never make it and that I was wasting my time. And I was very upset. I was quite emotional about it. But quite frankly, I was just like, nah, I trust me more than I trust you. And um, I thought she was undeniable. And clearly she is. And uh, yeah, I was just like, I'm going to go with my gut. Wow. Well, as you alluded to, it wasn't an overnight or 23-day success. And no, this was your first... 24 days. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> this was also your first time being thrust into this role of manager. I mean, you'd never managed talent before. What were the lessons learned along the way? What was your approach to introducing Brianka here? Well, I actually wasn't her manager at the time. So I had a label that ran through Interscope that Jimmy had given us. And Jimmy and I were the label heads to this label, which was called Desi Hits Interscope. And so I was a label head to that. She came over and actually at that time, Troy Carter was managing her, who managed Lady Gaga. And I'd asked Troy to come in because I was working on Lady Gaga and I was launching her in Asia and we built this really great relationship. And um, so I asked him to come in and manage Priyanka and I was the label head with Jimmy. But quite frankly, like as time evolved, like Jimmy was just like, look, no one's ever going to care about her as much as you do. And no one's ever going to get the story more than you will because you're a South Asian woman and this is, this is your life. It's never going to be someone's life like it's your life, right? So he was like, you need to manage her. And um, he said the same to Priyanka and then we ended up having this conversation and Priyanka was like, what do you think? And, you know, and Troy was amazing and he was like, yeah, I agree. Like, you should manage her. Like, you have this vision for her and you have this dream and this goal. And uh, he was like, you know, you should go for it. So I did. And I never looked back. And it was very hard for many, many years. And what was that vision? I mean, how did you get her started and launch her? You know, I had this strategy, which was very much like, when you look at American pop culture, what is it? And it's, it's, there's certain pillars in American pop culture. And I remember breaking it down for myself, like I would do anything, like a business plan. And I was like, if you starting a company, like ask Pio Kodaki to bring me a business plan. Um, and you know, anyone, you have a plan. And I, I, I really thought about American pop culture and I was like, it's sports, it's movies, it's television, it's music, it's fashion. So I was like, if I want to make her a global star, I have to break her in each one of those pillars. And we started actually with fashion and sports. So she did a track with Will I Am, which was the Saturday, uh, sorry, Thursday night football for the NFL. And by the way, I knew nothing. I'm a boyfriend sitting here and he's thinking, she knows nothing about football. <laughs> I mean, like nothing, but I knew it was really powerful. I knew the NFL was really powerful and I knew that people watched Thursday night football. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get her on that. And she had this track and that was when people really sort of started seeing her. So it was that. And then the next thing was um, I worked, I convinced guests. Um, at that point, guest goals are really big and they did a lot of advertising I convinced Paul Marciano, Paul Marciano, who was the CEO of Guest, to do a campaign with her, but to put her name on the campaigns. They'd never put the models' names on the campaigns before. So when they did the billboards and the magazines, I mean, we got paid next to nothing for it. And I said, I will do it if you put her name on it. And he agreed. Now they put the girls' names on everything. It's interesting. So we shifted culture there. And then it was like she did a movie for... Disney, then we managed it Quantico, and then obviously we were making music. So for me, it was like, I just wanted to infiltrate the world with this amazing woman. Wow. You've spoken a lot about how in managing her, you really practice the art of the pivot. Can you speak about that and the pivots you made and what you learned through those experiences? I have to give all the credit of the pivot to Pao Kodakia because she taught me how to pivot. And it's, it's so funny. She always says I'm her mentor, but in many ways she mentored me. And, you know, the student becomes a teacher and the teacher becomes a student. And I watched her pivot consistently. And I saw her so fearlessly pivot. I mean, she was really an incredible entrepreneur. And with Priyanka, I remember the music just wasn't moving. It wasn't going. And that's what I brought to America for. And honestly, there was a lot of pride and ego in admitting to her that maybe my strategy for her was wrong, right? I mean, I was working on these other things. I was doing the, the sports and I was doing the movies and I was doing all these different things. But I remember thinking, shit, like I got to tell her that um, we need to pivot. And um, I remember at the time, you know, 
uh, ABC was having this moment with all these diverse stars. There was Kerry Washington, there was you know Viola Davis, there was uh, Sandra Oh, and there was Sofia Vergara. And um, I remember just having this kind of aha moment and being like, this woman is an incredible actress. And that's her, like, real, that's her super skill, right? Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's what we need to do. So we need to pivot and we need to go and get a TV show. Wow. Now, I want to touch on this because you just mentioned how, in many ways, Bile has been a mentor to you in the same way that you have to her. And I think one of our shared mentors has a favorite quote, which is that your mentors don't pick you, you pick them by Indra Nui. I'm curious, what does it take for you to pick someone? That's such a good question because when Indra picked me, it was so funny. I was in Bombay with her and she said that she wanted to mentor me. And I was so like, wow, like, you know, I was so moved. Um, I feel like it just sort of happens. I, I feel like, you know, I don't know, all the stars align and something feels right and you have something to give to that person at that time and you know it and it's very clear to you. And I think at that time, I really could see I could help Pyle and I guess Indra could really see that she could help me and I guess Jimmy really saw that he could help me at that time. And, you know, that's the other thing about mentors, they come and go, right? You have different mentors at different stages. Like I would say right now, Indra is my main mentor um, and I don't see Jimmy as much anymore. Um, but I'm at a different stage. Like, you know, I'm investing more in CPG. I mean, I'm working on a company right now that Indra's been helping me with. And, you know, she's so front and center and amazing and her insights are incredible. Um, so yeah, I think it's really kind of the stars align, but I think it's really about when you, you see someone and you're like, yeah, I can really give something to that person right now. Across all the people that you've backed in the last number of years, and it's across spaces, it's not just startups, right? Like yeah. there's Anita Chatterjee of A-Game PR, there's Biokadakia, there's Branko Chopra Jonas, right? Totally different category. Do you feel like there's any underlying common denominators among the people you've backed? That's such a great question. Um, I'm buying myself some time by saying that. <laughs> um, no, I, no, I can't. All I can say is I think they're magical but in very different ways. And I know that's not really answering your question, but yeah, I don't know. It's just an X factor that I see in someone and I'm like, yeah, I want to spend my time on that person. Sure, I see it. Today, you're at the forefront of the South Asian community in so many ways and have given us so much to celebrate. And I get the sense that you're very much a no regrets person, but is there anything that you would do differently looking back? <sighs> You know, not in my professional life, but in my personal life, so I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> um, but um, no, I don't really. I, I just, you know, I believe everything's a lesson. I believe everything is like a stepping stone to the next thing that you have to do. I definitely went through phases in my life where I regretted things and thought that was terrible. But now I look back, I feel like everything was so valuable. Like the people that I've met, the places I've gone, the things I've done, really added to the robustness of who I am today. Um, so I don't really have any regrets. That was, I expected you to say that. <laughs> you wear a lot of hats, obviously, as an investor, entrepreneur, talent manager, advisor. Which hat do you, you know, I think to, to a lot of young people today feel a lot of pressure to choose a singular path for themselves. What advice do you have for people who want to wear those multiple hats and pursue their multitude of passions? So I have a very clear strategy to this. You have to look at the opportunities around you and you have to train your brain to look for opportunities. I guarantee you every single day, multiple opportunities will come your way, but you have to be tuned to see them. I've never had a plan. I've not, I've had like, I've had a wild plan. Like I want to be in Hollywood, but like beyond that, I've not had a strategy of how I'm going to get there. Wow. I had strategies like with projects that I've worked on, but for my own career, I've never had like a plan or a map or a strategy. But what I truly believe is there'll be lots of opportunities and I've got to find those opportunities and I've got to be trained. There's this great quote and it says, um, uh, well, this is about parachutes, but it's basically like parachutes are amazing, but they're only amazing when they're open. Your mind is amazing, but your mind is only amazing when it's open. 
So you have to like just train yourself to find opportunities. I don't know if I said that very articulately, but I just think there'll be lots of opportunities every single day and you have to train your mind. Sorry, that wasn't very well said. No, thank you for sharing that. I have one last question for you, but before we do that, I want to open it up to our audience to ask questions. Um, we do have a mic runner, but if you have a question, uh, please raise your hand, introduce yourself quickly, and also um, please try and keep it short so we can get to as many people as possible. Angela, this is Natasha. Hi. Uh, so two-parter question. First part is, we have an inner circle in our lives. How do you decide who is to be in that inner circle. And then second part to that is we have an outer circle, which is acquaintances and people we network with for different types of opportunities. So how do you decide who to network with? Um, hmm, that's such a good question. Hmm. So I think that one of the things I would say is my outer circle really became my inner circle because most of my inner circle are now people that I work with. Um, and I made this decision when I hit 40 that I wanted to work with people that I love and I really enjoy. And if I'm successful enough, I'll get to a place in my life where I can work with the people that I want to work with and who I really enjoy working with. So basically the outer circle sort of certain people from the outer circle became the inner circle. Um, but I look for certain things and the most important thing to me is loyalty and, um, loyalty and people that inspire me I think like people that you know have a breadth of knowledge and can inspire me and can add to the things that I'm thinking about I'm doing um so yeah I really think it's that and that can come from anywhere by the way I mean to give you an example this is my boyfriend over here and he's a firefighter and he inspires me every day, he saves lives every day. And that inspires me in so many ways. And some of the business things that I talk about to him, he'll give me a perspective, which is so different, like about how they break doors down to get people out of buildings, like, and the pressure they feel. And it's amazing, like the amount of business lessons I've gotten from those stories that he's told me and how I apply those to business. So I think also being really open to different people that can really bring different experience to you is really important. Well, thank you for all that you do and you continue to inspire. Um, I've you know, heard your story also about the pizza incident that you ordered pizza for some place, you get a meeting with them one time. And that, that stuck in my brain for ages. Wow, you have good memory. I was, I was thinking, what was that pizza? Oh, I know which one that was now, yeah. So, um, you know, I just want to say uh, thank you for continuing to inspire all of us. Uh, question in regards to how you look at investments now that you've gone through the rigmarole of being an investor. Um, a shameless plug. I may have something that uh, I want to send you a pitch deck for. So, <laughs> um, wanting to, you know, just glean some interest in regards to how you refine your approach to Yeah, my investments is not refined. It's the same as it was when I first started. And, um, so there's a couple of things is, uh, one, I have to believe in the founder because what you start off building will probably not be what it is at the end, right? Like all of the founders that I've believed in and backed have pivoted multiple times. So I, it's really not about the idea that they have. It's about believing in them and then, but also believing that there's a problem worth solving. I think the challenge that we have with a lot of founders that pitch to me, they're like trying to create this problem that in my opinion doesn't need solving. Um, so it's really just believing there's a problem that needs solving. It's that and then just believing in the founder and just being like, I know this founder is going to see this idea through to the end, whatever it might evolve to be. Hi, thank Hi. you for a great event. Uh, and again, thank, thank you. you for inspiring um, all of us South Asians in the room. Um, one, my name is Parina, and one question I had for you is, so you you had meetings with like Priyanka, Jimmy, and in, in meeting these influential people can always be nerve wracking, right? Your insecurities kick in. Um, how did you overcome all of that when you were in a room with all these influential people? Whether it was the first time you were meeting Jimmy, first time you were meeting Priyanka, um, whoever it was. Yeah, um, so I'm going to be really honest, and this is controversial. I faked it. I was nervous as hell, 
And like I said, I would suggest anybody that wants to do what I've done, please go and do an improv class because it will really help you. So when, when I'm nervous, I'm really super conscious of, of how I'm sitting. So this actually is quite nervous body language I'm, I'm showing right now, but I'm not nervous. But like when I'm nervous, I do this thing where I'll sit like this, I'll like flick my hair, I'll, I'll kick my leg out. I will act very much like I'm not nervous. And it will convince the other person that I'm not nervous. And I learned to do that at drama school. And I think that... Um, everyone's nervous and then your nerves get the better of you. I think some of the most successful people in the world who I've met are nervous in certain environments. And, um, yeah, I just think you've got to fake it to make it kind of thing. Like I think, um, you know, I think, yeah, I think <laughs> that's it. That's my, that's my theory. But, um, I have been really nervous at certain times, but also if you really believe in what you're selling and you really believe you've got something, like that can take some of those nerves away too, but you can still really believe in something and be nervous. Hi, I'm Shilpa. Um, my question is, or I'll start with, I think for me, what's most inspiring is that you've taken what would be conventionally a, or an unconventional career compared to many of us who are in the South Asian community. So I'm a little bit older. I took a very traditional path in a career perspective, and I'm now pivoting to doing something more non-conventional. What do you feel would be some key things to take from a traditional career as someone pivots? Like, what do you think are valuable skill sets to highlight as people, tr people start to make those pivots? Yeah, I mean, just so you know, like I pivoted through my career consistently. But I will tell you that, again, going back to my comment about opportunities, it's never been a conscious pivot, right? I've never gone, okay, um, I'm an entrepreneur, now I want to be a record executive, or now I want to be a manager, or now I want to be an investor. Like, none of those things happened for me. I never made a conscious decision. An opportunity arose, and I jumped on it, right? I just saw it. So I don't know if that's going to help you, but ultimately you can take skills from anywhere. That's what I've learned, whether it's a traditional conventional career or whether it's being an entrepreneur and investor, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like people are people. And I think the most important ability is to be able to sell, sell your idea, sell, sell whatever it is that you want to do to someone, because you've either got to get someone to come along on your journey with you um, or you, you know, it's always sales. It doesn't matter what it is. And sales to me is very much like when people say, well, you know, sales, what is sales? Like sales is having an inspiration and getting people to come on the journey with you. So how do you get people to come on a journey with you? Whatever it is. So I would say that the most important skill is that figuring out how to get people to come on a journey with you. Thank you, Simi, for hosting this. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Megan. I'm the co-founder of Women in Climate Investing and Finance. I'm an investor in Malai, which is an Indian-inspired ice cream company. I'm sitting next to the CEO, Pooja Pavishi, who I just love hyping up South Asian women. Love that. Um, but my actual question is just, you said that you didn't um, plan out your career, but do you have any kind of big goals for the next 5, 10, 15 years that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? actually don't um but here's the thing I <laughs> it sounds so awful sometimes like, I wish I did but I don't but I know like amazing things will come along and I'll jump on them like so ah actually no I do have one goal I wrote a fiction novel I'm really trying to get it finished it's been I've been very distracted from it in the last year but that that is one goal to uh publish that and turn that into a movie it's about two South Asian uh, girls who were sisters growing up in the UK at a time when culture was really converging. It's like kind of with a backdrop of hip hop and bhangra and reggae and kind of what was happening in England in the 90s, kind of from the music scene, but really this kind of subculture that South Asians have really created through their experience of being first generation in the UK. We'll take maybe one or two more questions right here in the red. For organizing this to me, and it's wonderful seeing you, uh, Angela. Um, my question, my question is, um, you've taken so many risks along the way. There hasn't been a single guidebook that exists, and I'm sure you know if you when you're in the decision making process, it wasn't just like a Google search away. 
Um, so when you were in this decision-making process, like how did you decide which risk is worth taking or not? And like, why didn't you invest in the apparel um, business and like continue that? And why did you like change gears? Um, I feel like I take risks every single day, every moment of the day. And it could be simple as making a phone call that nobody wants to make. And I'm the one that has to make it because I need X to happen. Um, so I think I'm taking risks all of the time. Um, in terms of why didn't I do that business, I couldn't find the team that I wanted to execute that business. Um, and I really believe in teams. Like, I think it's really important. You can have an idea, but if you don't have the right team around you, it's really hard to execute. It was a specific type of business. Um, but generally, like, yeah, I'm taking risks all of the time. But um, I just, as you talked about this at Columbia, I wouldn't even say I'm like a calculated risk taker. I'm one of those people that just jumps off the cliff, like, and hopes I land. And I've just gotten used to doing it. It's kind of crazy. Um, and I really thought I was risk adverse when I was growing up. So I don't even know how it happened. <laughs> Take one last question from the audience. Hey, Angela. Hi. Uh, great talk. Uh, my name is Shannon. I'm the co-founder of Evolve. So my question to you is really pertaining to your position as a board of director at BuzzFeed. Um, what is, in like your opinion, uh, where do you think the media industry is heading, given that you know there's not much disruption happening in the space for so long? Um, do you have any insight on like where do you think it's evolving or, you know, where do you see if there are any new forms of media arising from it, from this space? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think TikTok has come in and disrupted media in a really huge way um, and taken so much like uh, mind share from so many people, for so many people in different demographics, obviously. Um, but I think AI is super interesting in media right now. Um, and I think a lot of people are scared of that. But um, I think that could be a major disruptor. I think it has some real challenges and I think it's scary in some ways. But I also think it could be, as I do with technology generally, I think it can also be super exciting and have great opportunities. Um, but that's kind of what I see happening right now. And also I think there's a huge convergence in media um, which is taking place, but it's really exciting. I mean, when you just sort of think about even like streaming, um, and, and, you know, whether it's Netflix, Amazon, and just in terms of the global storytelling that's happening now and how people are watching things with, uh, uh, subtitles, which they never did before, which was very much a pandemic thing. Um, I think people really wanted to travel through, through media and through, through storytelling. So they did that and they became less kind of, you know, constricted by it has to be in one language, it has to be this, it has to be that. So I think there's some really exciting things happening right now, really from more from a global storytelling perspective. Thank you. Uh, sorry, just a follow up. Uh, do you think there's any disruption more in the publication space? Like text, you know, you mentioned a lot about like videos, streaming anything in text area, given that, you know, you are on the board of BuzzFeed? Um, yeah, I think AI is what's really going to disrupt that. Wonderful. Well, as I said, I have one last question for oh, you. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> You've worn all these hats that we've talked about through the course of this conversation, and it kind of sounds like you're putting a new one on. Can you tell us what's next for you? I am. Tell me. I you don't said, know. You <laughs> said you're working on something. Oh, oh. Oh, I can't talk about that right now. Okay, okay. We'll come back. We'll revisit. Uh, Can you give us broadband? What's next for you? Um, well, look, I, as I said, I think it's like, oh, it's going to sound so like wishy-washy, but I, um, a certain opportunity arose. I jumped on it with somebody that I really respect. So, yeah, working on something right now with someone that I have worked with before. So that's really exciting. And I'm really not saying very much. <laughs> Part <laughs> two coming next year. <laughs> um, Angela, thank you so much you. for being here, for volunteering your time and giving us the opportunity, like I said, to share in your experiences and learn so much from you. It's really an honor. Can we please give her a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. Can we give Simi a round of applause too? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. Uh
appreciate you being here. Um, thank you all again so much for being here tonight. Uh, it's so special truly to bring our community to life in this way. Um, and I just wanna say if any part of this conversation resonated with you, which I hope it did and our mission resonates you, please find us. Uh, we're so grateful for your continued support. South Asian Trailblazers is on Apple, Spotify, we're on socials. And of course, please come find me or if you wanna connect, we're at southasiantrailblazers.com. Um, help yourself to a swag bag of the 14 brands you see uh, represented here today. 13 are South Asian owned and operated. Over half are by women. And I say that to say that there are so many ways that we can continue to encourage and empower people from our own community. So if you're able to, please take that chance. Um, I also want to give a shout out to my parents who are here tonight. Uh, uh, they flew up from Atlanta for this event and I truly consider them the original South Asian trailblazers Aww. who laid the groundwork for, I think their entire generation very much laid the groundwork for what our community is achieving today. So I say that sure. as an homage to them. Um, and yes, thank you all so much for being here. Please help yourself to a swag bag and more food. And of course, thank you again, Anjula. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.